Well, everybody, I'm so happy that you are here. Thanks. You sound great while we're worshiping. And maybe you're a long-term veteran, or perhaps this is the first time you've been to church in a long time. If that is the case, thanks for having the courage to come. Hope this is a safe place for you to explore who Jesus is. So this last week, we had an interesting experience. We had a, a district conference for the family of churches we're part of hosted here at Faith Chapel. So we had 600 leaders from Washington, Idaho, North Dakota, and Montana here. It was a good experience. This place was filled and busy all week long, and everybody loved Montana. I just told them they weren't allowed to move here. <laughs> right? You got to keep it the last best place. But one of the benefits of having this um, conference here is two of my brothers got to come out because they both pastor in the Seattle area. And my brother Jake agreed to stay behind. And so he's going he's gonna to teach this morning. Jake, his wife Rachel, and their four kids live in Shoreline. They pastor New Hope Church there in Shoreline. Jake's a really wonderful teacher of the scriptures. You know, we're only, I think, 18, 19 months apart. And Jake, I made it easy on Jake in school because um, I, I was academically inferior to him. We'll just put it that way. And so the same teacher would then get Jake and go like, wow, you're really sharp. <laughs> and I say, yes. So anyway, Jake is a great Bible teacher. He's got a very th thought-provoking concept on uh, who is God and how we, how we figure out exactly who he is in our lives. So would you warmly welcome my brother, Jake Petzl, as he speaks. <clears throat> I was academically smarter, but he's people smart. Nate was the homecoming king and student body president, and all I did was do academics and wrestle, so he's got me on all levels, all right? My brother is better than me. When I was about 10 years old, Nate and I were, oh, by the way, thanks for having me in Montana, really, um, a lot of you have become special to me, and um, Billings and Beyond has come to our church, or one of the churches that I pastored in the past and fixed up our digs, and so... We really owe you a lot, and uh, every time I come here, I just feel like kind of like kind of coming home. We grew up in Colorado, and so Ponderosa Pines and um, uh, Juniper, and when I can smell those things and see big cottonwoods and, and Aspen, it, it heals my heart a little bit, and it's true. You do have a lot of what we want in Seattle, which is namely land and, um, and a lack of traffic, so um, yeah, we're jealous. When I was about 10 years old or so, my brother Nate and I were at my grandparents' house in Denver, Colorado, and we were bored. My parents had gone and left us there, and there's just, how many people know there's not a lot to do at grandma's house? So we ended up in the garage, and we were poking through stuff, and we found their golf clubs. And so Nate thought it would be really fun to go ahead and take, some, take a, a, a driver and go over to the park and hit some balls. And so um, he chickened out, though, and didn't take the club. But I took a three-wood, and he grabbed the balls and the tees, and we headed, over, we headed over to the park. We especially thought this wouldn't be a big deal uh, because my grandfather had emphysema, um, and he you know, was toting around a big old oxygen tank back in those days. And my grandmother was just, she was just an old grandma, you know, wrinkly and gray-haired with curls. And we just could not imagine them ever golfing. And so we figured it'd be all right. So we took some golf clubs, or one golf club, and we went over and we started hitting some balls. By we, I mean me. I'm the one that hit the ball. Um, and I hit it. I missed once, and then I hit it another time. It went about 10 yards, about the same if I go golfing today. 
And so I ran over to pick up the ball, and as I'm picking up the ball, I hear Nate say, it's grandma. And so I don't know what to do with the club, because I didn't ask. So I grab it, and I shove it down my pant leg. <laughs> I shove it right down my pant leg, and uh, because I'm 10, it's substantially longer than my leg, and so it goes up to about mid-waist. And so as she's coming, I turn around and I sort of scoot it backwards, and I say, Grandma, how are you doing? And Grandma's all like, what's going on, boys? And we said, oh, nothing. And she said, well, it's time for lunch, time to come home. And I suddenly have a very, very stiff leg. And so I'm walking, and, and she's like, what's wrong with your leg, Jake? And I was like, oh, I just, I got a cramp. I just got a cramp. You guys go on without me. I'll catch you. I just got to get this cramp out. And so my grandma and Nate, they go walking and they go into the house. And as they go into the house, I quickly slip into the garage. And I put the, the three wood back into my grandma's golf case. And then when I come out and I think, yes, I got away with it. That was a close one. But when I come out of the garage, she is waiting for me at the door. And my grandma was the nicest person that you could ever imagine. I never heard her raise her voice. Um, she was just so sweet. But she looks at me right in the face and she says this to me. I do not mind that you borrowed the golf club, but I do mind that you did without asking. And, that I, and I also mind that you tried to hide it from me. And then she said this little phrase that... I have been thinking about for 30 years, one of these phrases that haunt you. And she said this, you act as if I don't matter, as if I'm not really here. And I'm like, whoa, grandma, that's kind of heavy, you know, as if I'm not here, as if I don't matter. And, and I felt shameful and I felt bad and, you know, she stabbed me in the heart. And there was part, part of it, too, that I was a little bit resentful because... The Lord knew she was never going to use those golf clubs, you know? We knew it. She knew it. Like, was she getting all high and mighty, like I don't exist? Or, you know, you treat me like I'm not really there. I don't matter. And it's this guilt trip, but, but, but it, I've sort of dwelt on this. Um, and the more I think about it, I think what she was saying is something similar to, like, if you've ever seen uh, the quest for the Holy Grail, Monty Python. And when the guy brings out his dad... And he throws him on the death cart. Do you remember this? And he says, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> There's part of me that's trying to say, and this is what she meant, as if I don't matter, as if I'm not really here. You're trying to get my stuff without trying to get me in relationship. You're trying to get my, you're trying to, to, to get my stuff as if I'm not really here. And the more that I've thought about it, and the reason why it sort of haunted me is because I have a tendency of treating people that way. But more precisely, I've had a tendency to treat God that way. The more I think about that incident, the more that I realize that I have often treated God. I act, I behave, I think like, I imagine. I presume that God simply doesn't care, that he doesn't mind, or that he isn't watching. What I found out that day from my grandmother after this incident is that she had watched me the whole time. From when I emerged from the garage until when I teed up and hid that first ball, she saw it all. And God is like my grandma. From whom I take without asking, from whom I disobey his wishes, from whom I try to hide 
what I've done, and to whom I presume his property is mine to use as I would see fit. Do you know the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, everything belongs to God. But I have a tendency to treat my children or my wife or, or acquaintances or traffic, the guy in the car next to me in Seattle, as if, he, as if I wish he wasn't there, right? I have this tendency even to about my own body to, to, do, to treat it in such a way as if God has no ownership here, as if he doesn't exist or doesn't really care. But the scriptures tell us that we were bought with a price, that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Not even my body belongs to God. And isn't that exactly what we do? Because I'm going to put you in this boat with me. And isn't this what we do and this is how we treat God when we do things that we have no business doing, when we get involved in lust, when we get angry at someone and say things that we ought not, when we, when we get enraged, when we, when we flirt with another man's wife or another woman's husband, when we look at porn, isn't there a sense in which we are saying to God, I wish that you weren't really there. I, I'm treating you as if you don't really exist, as if you don't really matter in my life. We act as if God isn't there, as if he can't see us, as if he's indifferent. And this disregard of God's instructions and disregard of God's ownership of the world that he has made, including my own life, is what theologians and the Bible calls sin. It's, what, it's called sin. David wrote about it like this in Psalm 14. He says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. We think, okay, David, you got this, wait, you got this all wrong. The fool does not say in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his mind, there is no God. Or the fool says with his mouth, there is no God. And then he goes and does a bunch of corrupt deeds. But David is making a very, very subtle distinction here and an amazing point that we might not catch if we didn't pay attention. You see, in the time of David, um, he wrote to a monotheistic culture surrounded by polytheistic cultures. There was no such thing as Darwin or modern scientific discoveries, or, or, or scientific methodology. There was no mental cognitive atheist. Everybody believed in a god or gods. And so what David is saying, no, it's not, this isn't, see, atheism isn't so much a head issue as it is a heart issue. The fool says in his heart, there is no god. Essentially, the fool says, who cares what god wants? or expects from me. And a fool does whatever he wants. Now, some of us are thinking, that's exactly what's wrong with our society. You know, we, you know, our politics and our, and our education system and our businesses, we all treat God as if he doesn't exist. And those fools out there, look what they're doing. Isn't this terrible? It's all corrupt and vile. But David goes a little bit further and he says, hey, listen, this atheism of the heart is not just a fool thing. It's a everybody thing because he says this, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. What does he see? All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. God looks down from heaven 
like my grandmother from her window. And he sees it all. But we walk around and we do what we want. And we justify ourselves. And we say in our hearts, no, not so often in our heads, that there is no God. We tend to think of God as an idea, as a topic, or as a construct. And we distance ourselves from him emotionally. Because it's a fool who's saying in his heart. We distance ourselves emotionally from this God so that we can do what we want when we want. Notice that David says here that the outcome of not seeking God and not understanding God ultimately is corruption. It says in 2, two and 3, it says the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see, are there any who understand or seek God? And the answer is no. See, the consequence of heart atheism is corruption and sin. Listen, if, if we made ourselves in an emotional sense aware that God is alive and observing and sentient, that is emotionally present, observing, if we walked around with that reality, do you think we would sin as we do? Do you think our culture would be better than it is? Do you think our church would be more healthy than it is? It's kind of like this. If, if you're not with me, hopefully this illustration will help. I had a friend in high school who uh, cut out a picture of Jesus um, and he put it on his dashboard of his car because he was struggling um, going too far with his girlfriend in his car. And so the reason why he did that is he said, you know, if Jesus sees me, then maybe I won't go there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? God is watching you. And so he did that, but then there were times when he just didn't want God to see what he was doing. So we had turned that picture around. <laughs> it's not that he didn't believe that God was watching or that God loved him or the God that cared, but there was an emotional thing in his heart in which he didn't want God to be there. He wanted to enjoy the things that he wanted to enjoy without being observed. Do you hear what I'm saying? Atheism is not so much a mental or a cognitive process as it is a heart issue. And it's a heart issue that we all struggle with. I'm going to suggest to you that the reason why we do this, the reason why we treat God as if he doesn't matter or is, as if he's not really there is because we do not really know him fully or else we have often forgotten who he is. So I'm going to share with you a story about a man who has this first sort of encounter with this living God, not a God made of a construction or a social idea, but or not God as a philosophical topic, but the actual living, breathing, sentient being who is God. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord, literally that word angel means the messenger. There, the messenger of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, 
here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God, like my grandmother from the window, walks out and confronts Moses on his way out the garage, and he says, I see you. I observe you. I knew your father. I knew your history. I know and I see who you are and what you've done. And I know everything about you. And then he continues on. The Lord said, I have also seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Moses has run away from Egypt because he killed a man who was beating one of his Hebrew fellow countrymen. And so this tells me that somewhere in Moses' heart were these really big questions. Does God really exist? Is he really out there? I think that he is, but if so, why does he let my people suffer? And Moses says to, God says to Moses, I have seen. I, in fact, I not only have seen you, but I see my people. And I have heard their misery. And I've heard them crying out because of, their, because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. We're going to skip over to verse 13 now. Moses says to God, well, suppose I go to Israel. And uh, the Israelites, and I, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they ask me, well, what's his name? And... Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I suggested to you that if we truly know God, that this sort of emotional atheism and the corruption that it brings in our life will be diminished. So we need to know ultimately who is God in the same way that Moses was revealed to Moses who is God here. And there's some claims that God makes about his, himself, and particularly in, in, in his name that we need to gather here. The first thing I want you to notice that is he is the I am. Who is God? First of all, he is the I am. People in Egypt, Moses wandering around in the desert, people in Montana, people in Seattle, Jake, me, and you. I am Jake, me, and you. We all have this tendency in our hearts to say he ain't. And do you know what God's response to that? Because, look, look, if God was, would he let this happen to me? Right? If God was, would he let me suffer? If God was, would he let me wander? If God was, would I be in the position where I am? And God wants Moses to know this, and he wants you to know this. When you say he ain't, his response to you is, I am. 
before you were made, before the stars were hung in the sky, before the universe was observed, I am. I am beyond you. I am not a construct of you. I am beyond. I am transcendent. When God says, I want them to know that I am, what, what does he mean? What does he mean that I am sent you? I, when I first um, started doing, well, Nate and I grew up in the same church. My dad was a pastor. and um, In college, Nate became a college pastor at a place called the Onyx House, which was right across from the University of Oregon. And so every week, some 500 kids from the uni- students from the university would come over and we'd do, a, you know, Nate would preach and there would be worship and and I was there to help and set up chairs and, you know, just do some leadership stuff and ultimately to pick up chicks. And, um, <laughs> which is kind of true. That's where I met my wife, so that actually did happen. And when we were there, one week Nate wasn't preaching, much like today, but he wasn't there either. Um, he is here today, obviously. And the, the preacher, the teacher that week, talked about the story of Uzzah. Now, some of you aren't familiar with the story of Uzzah, so I'm going to tell you. In the Old Testament... Um, David had gone into these battles and he would fight against other armies and one of the things that he liked to do was to bring the Ark of the Covenant um, which really represented the the presence of God in fact the presence of God sort of hovered over there and inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments and so that this represented that God was there and that God was fighting the battle for them at some point, because of sin uh, in, in the army, um, basically they lost the battle and a foreign army took the Ark of the Covenant. Long story short, it finally comes home. And in its coming home, um, David and all of his troops are going back into Israel with the Ark of the Covenant, with the presence of God. And people are dancing and shouting. It's a massive parade. People came from all over the country. And, and so they would be watching as it was going by. And as it was being towed by an oxen on a cart, one of the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah reaches up his hand to study the ark. And he is struck dead right there. So we're, we're reading the story and teaching about the story. And a, and a young woman ran, raises her hand and stands up. And she says, uh, that's not my God. My God is love. My God would never, never do that. Have you ever had someone do the same thing to you? I I once was a pastor of a church up north, and we we were doing these um, up north of Seattle, and we were doing these projects, these repairs, and one one of our guys got um, a key to our building, and he was really trying to be helpful. But he would come in like when nobody knew, and he would change door handles, and he would just sort of replace things and change things, and we'd show up and things were gone and missing and different. And um, it was really kind of not helpful. <laughs> so I, I met with him and I said, first of all, give me your key. And then secondly, I'm so thankful that you want to help us. But, but, if you, um, but you, ju- you just have to ask. You just have to ask. The man got so mad at me. He said, you are a control freak. This church is not all about you. If you don't let people do stuff, there's something wrong with you. And, and I thought, well, time out, time out, time out. This church isn't all about me. But you are the control freak. <laughs> You're the one that's breaking and entering and changing things. <laughs> right? Have you ever had someone project their stuff on you? It's sort of like dehumanizing, isn't it? 
It's like they think they know who you are, but, but you're not really that. I had someone once call me an emotional wall. I'm like, that's not fair. Like, I cry and all kinds of stuff, you know? Emotional wall. Maybe you're the emotional wall. And there is a tendency for you and I to look at God and say, God would never do that. I have a God of love. He would never do that. But when we do that, do you see, we are simply making a God of our construction, a God who agrees with us. Do you know in Seattle, this is sick, most churches will pray for the Seahawks on Sunday morning. I have a transplant from San Francisco who says, I chose your church because you don't pray for the Seahawks. <laughs> God does not tote the party line. God does not simply do what we want him to do. God is not simply a projection of us. A fool says in his heart there is no God so that he can do what he wants. We reduce God to an object, to an idea, to be discussed. Not someone who is living and breathing and watching and being pained even by what we do. We minimize and we marginalize the true God. And God says to Moses this, do not come any closer. Take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. Moses, I am not you. I am not a projection of you. I am not a construct of you. I am. I am. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible tells us. And he is other than us. I pray that you hear him speak to you today through his word. But if we were to stop there with this reality of the transcendence of God, the power of God, we would be great God-fearers only. <laughs> but this is a Christian church, and we are Christians and that means that we can't just stop with the transcendency of God or the power of God because that's not fully who he is. And in this passage, God gives himself two names. The first name is I am. But if you'll notice in verse 15, when, when Moses says, what am I supposed to tell you? God, God also says this, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is also my name forever. And you shall call me by it from generation to generation. Not only God is transcendent, but he is also deeply, deeply personal. He knows us. He sees our, our, all of the, what we do, right? And he knows our fathers and our, and our grandfathers and our nationality. He knows everything about us. And verse 8 in this passage I love so much because it says this, So I, have, I, I am concerned. I have seen what happens. So I have come down to rescue them, God says. In this passage is the gospel. That is, the idea that God is not just distant and transcendent, but that God is engaged in humanity. That he came down to rescue us. He, he is with us, it says, I have come down. 
This is, a, this is a, an early kind of idea about the presence of Jesus coming into the world, the presence of God. I have come to you. We call it Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus in the flesh has come to us. But secondly, he is for us. It says, why has he come down? He has come down to rescue them. He is for us. He loves us. The second part of God. This personal God who knows us by name, who knows the number of hairs on our head. Man, this is the stuff that we love to talk about. And the love of God is profound. And he has forgiven us. And man, that's the gospel. But I'm going to suggest to you, if you do not understand the first part of God, the transcendent one, the powerful one, the one who exists beyond you, you will get in trouble and you will make him a projection of who you are. What do I mean by that? If he, is in the, if, he, if he is the I am, this transcendent idea of God and, and, and who he is, do you know what it will create in us? It will create in us awe and wonder and, and fear and trepidation. There are places that we will no, not go and things that we will not see because we do not want to displease because he is judge and jury. It will create in us humility and caution and circumspection. And you will make the same mistake that the woman made about Uzzah. God will become a projection of your ideas of him. But if you look only at the God who is I am, the transcendent one, you will go around groveling before him, unconfidence of his grace and love for you. You will perpetually be afraid that you have committed the unforgivable sin because it is the personal nature of God that creates in us love and loyalty and courage and forgiveness and confidence and joy. This transcendent God also came to rescue me. Here's the antidote to heart atheism. Know God. Know him. All of him. And understand that he's both transcendent and powerful as well as loving and personal. In my opinion, however, in my own life and observing in other people's life, we have a tendency to promote one over the other. To cling to one in disregard of the other. And there are some in this room who have been taught how special you are and how loved you are and how Jesus came simply to affirm you. He's sort of like a millennial sugar daddy. A build-a-god bear. You know, you put a little stuffing in and you put a little heart in it and you just you get a birth certificate. You know? Today I want you to know, for those of us in the room of whom I am one, God sees all that you do. He knows what you think. He was with you last night. He knows the dark places where you go. You need to take off your shoes. <laughs> and you need to remember that you are standing in the presence of the living, everlasting God who created heaven and earth. The I Am. And he would say to you, you did not choose me, but I chose you.
On the other hand, there are many in this room who were taught that they must kneel, that they must beg for mercy, that they may, must make confession for every sin, that the only way to approach God is ultimately is on your knees, and that you are really never sure of God's love for you. Today, I want you to hear God say, I have come down to rescue you. I have heard your suffering. I choose you. I chose you. And not only am I the God that said you must take off your shoes to come before me, I am also the God who says in my word, come boldly before the throne of grace. And I am the same God that would wash your feet. He would also say to you, there is nothing that can separate you from my love. See, the Christian faith is like a two-stroke engine. If you know what that means, uh, I have a boat, and at the end, at back of my boat is a two-stroke engine. What does that mean? If I were just to put gas in that puppy, it would burn out real quick. But if I just put oil in that puppy, it wouldn't work at all. Two-stroke engines require a mixture of oil and gas. Christianity is a two-stroke engine. We must understand that God is transcendent, that he is beyond us, that he is a mystery, that his ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But we also must remember that he is for us and he loves us and he is rooting for us and he's poured out his, his flesh and died for you and for me. See, who is God? He is both the I am and he is Emmanuel. He is the one who is for us, who came to rescue us. His justice demands a sacrifice and his love provides the sacrifice. He is the one who says, take off your shoes and the one who washes our feet. Do you know him today? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? First of all, with every head bowed and every eyes closed, I just want to know, is there, is there anyone in the room who has not known this God, who has not received this Jesus into their life? And you know today is the day that you want to do that. If that's you, would you, would you just raise your hand? I'm going to agree with you. That today you want to know God. That you hear him speaking from his word. Is there anybody in the crowd like that? All right. That's awesome. Secondly, Lord, we come before you. Presumptuous. <laughs> um, trying to construct you. And many of us, Lord, have forgotten who you truly are. Jesus, today, we take off our shoes. We would say to you, you are the great God. You are the great I am. We recognize your might and your power and your majesty. We worship you. And we recognize, Lord, that you are not us, but that you are beyond us. And then, Lord... For some of us in the room who feel just lost and unloved and forgotten, 
Jesus, would you help us remember that you love us and that you came to rescue us? Jesus, give us a proper thought. Give us a proper idea. Give us the proper mixture of your transcendence and of your love so that we may, Lord, know that you observe but that you're all rooting for us, Lord. And we may walk into a new time in our lives where our, where our lives and our faith is being driven by an engine, which is you, Lord, and not a projection of who we think you are. Thank you, Jesus. Be with these people this week in all of their lives, Lord, in their neighborhoods and in their workplaces, Lord, and in their families. And would you be real to them? And may their heart be aware of your presence in a new way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be with you. Have a great week, and I hope you're back next week for my brother, who's better at me than most things. Amen? <laughs> Have a great week.